three on the way. Good! And Garland spins down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has erupted. Welcome to Fear the Fro, a podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is, my favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Yeah! Yeah! Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I'm Bob Schmidt, the host of this Cavalier-centric and NBA podcast. But I can guarantee you, after what we saw against the Boston Celtics, this will be 80-90% Cavalier-centric. Because as it stands now, the Cavs just notched their biggest win of the season to go 4-1, and one, to take down a team which, while free-falling defensively, they are missing Robert Williams the third was fantastic last night until... It when it mattered in the fourth quarter, and then they allowed the Cavs to take it to overtime. And in overtime, Karis Levert put on a show. Karis Coleman Levert, his best game of the season, undoubtedly. Now let's look at some numbers. First, I want you to close your eyes and imagine that you didn't watch this game. Perhaps you didn't. Well, if I told you the following, 75 points for the Boston Celtics at halftime, 24 points for Jason Tatum on seven of nine shooting, seven of eight from the free throw line. Jalen Brown, 14 points on five of seven from the floor. Al Horford, a perfect four for four with 10 points. If I said all those things at halftime and you knew that the Celtics shot 66%, 56% from three, you would assume that this was a Cavalier loss, but no, sir. Because despite trailing the Celtics by 13 points after the first half, things were looking bleak. I thought, well, you know what? We got a great performance out of Levert. This is going to be one of those games where the focus of the Fear the Fro podcast is going to be on the individual positives. Which, at halftime, Mitchell had chipped in 17 points. Levert had scored 15 behind what was perhaps his best first quarter of the season, in my opinion. Levert came out immediately Gave us nine points and a couple of assists and knocked down both threes in the first quarter. But at halftime, it certainly didn't look like this was going to be the Cavs' night because they weren't able to do much of anything to slow the Celtics. The Celtics were scoring inside. They were making them outside, and they were getting to the free throw line. Some things that were worrying for the Cavaliers was that Osman, typically known for his first-half production, contributed just one point in the first half of this game and made zero baskets from the floor. And Isaac Okoro, in his one shift, may have essentially sealed his fate as far as getting buried in this rotation. Because mind you, this is a team that is playing without Darius Garland. This is a team playing without Ricky Rubio. And I would say Raul Neto had an objectively bad game tonight. But even with that, there was a moment in the first half where Isaac Okoro got an open look from the right corner for three, missed it, managed to get the offensive rebound, the team did, kicked it out to Okoro, who was still wide open, and he missed it again. And it just sort of highlights the issues that we've had. Now, I wouldn't say that Dean Wade's performance was the best one that he's had this season, but I will say he was a huge part of what really turned this game in the second half, which is that Dean Wade was the man who drew the assignment on Jason Tatum. Who torched us in that first half? But in the second half, we shaded him with a second guy. And in the second half, for whatever reason, the Celtics went away from running two bigs out there and Horford and Cornette, which I thought was effective in the first half. 
And that allowed us to throw doubles at him with a lot less fear of lobs over the top to bigs. And it effectively shut down his productivity. This was a man who gave us 24 in the first half. Well, he only gave us six points in the course of the entire second half. Eight, if you want to count overtime. But his touches were limited. Dean Wade did a great job at trying to contest him, even getting entry passes. And it was a tale of two halves in terms of Jason Tatum because you got elite Jason Tatum, MVP-level Jason Tatum in half one. But half two was largely led by Jalen Brown. He had an incredible and one dunk over Donovan Mitchell that came on the heels of him stealing an entry pass to Karis LeVert. There were those moments where you thought, okay, the momentum is with the Celtics. We're in trouble. But fortunately, missed some big threes when it mattered. And we get to the fourth quarter. The Cavaliers go into the fourth quarter trailing 99-95 right out of the gate. Mobley, a quick fall away. They end up tying it up. And the Celtics then go on to score seven straight points in the fourth quarter. It felt like all that work, all that chipping away in the third quarter to take a 13-point deficit and cut it to four points and even tie it up at the beginning of the fourth, and then we were just going to throw it away on what was a string of careless plays. You had Love called for an offensive foul, or I shouldn't say an offensive foul. You had Love launching himself into Cornette on a three-point attempt trying to draw a foul that got overturned, and then Cornette won the, the jump ball. So essentially, that was a lost possession for the Cavs. You had Mitchell think that he had Mobley on a roll and throw it away. You had Wade kick it out on a three-point look to nobody. He just sort of threw it between two men out of bounds. And you had Osman dribble himself into a charge when he jumped up in the air and White was stationed and that went against the Cavs. So it was a string of mistakes that looked like at about seven minutes left, we were going to possibly throw this game away. But the Cavaliers just rallied through it and eventually took the lead late in the game on a Karis LeVert three-pointer that he made off his own offensive rebound, a huge possession where he ran across the lane, jumped in front of Al Horford, got the rebound. You could see Horford was flummoxed, looking around like, who blew that assignment? Who didn't put a body on that man? And while he was doing that, LeVert retreated to the corner three-pointer and hit it over top of Horford. It was a huge, huge sequence. Here's the story of the fourth quarter. Marcus Smart, 0 for 3. Jason Tatum, 0 for 3. Donovan Mitchell had a huge fourth quarter, and Karis LeVert took over the overtime. And we know how it ended. It ended with the Cleveland Cavaliers with two 40-point scores, something that we haven't seen since the days of LeBron James and Kyrie Irving in the finals. And not just 40-point scores, efficient 40-point scores. Doing this without Darius Garland. The tail of the tape, 41 points. Seven assists, four boards for Karis LeVert, two huge offensive rebounds. Now, Donovan Mitchell chips in 41 of his own. He had a much sloppier game, seven turnovers. But Jalen Brown matched that with seven turnovers of his own. So in the end, it was enough for Cleveland and their barrage of three-point shooting and their dominant guard play and the steady contributions of Evan Mobley to come out on top of this Boston Celtics team. I did come away with a few takeaways. For the Boston Celtics. They looked much better when they decided to go with the two big lineup of Horford and Cornette. I thought what really cost them was that as they went away from that and they had less big bodies out there, we were able to shade more 
on Tatum, and there weren't guys that you could throw it over to in the paint. You were allowing our guys in the paint, like J- Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, to kind of lean towards the side of the court that Tatum was to try to deter the drives to the rim. Because the guys that they had around Tatum were not, there wasn't really somebody they could just toss it into in the post. And not to say that anyone was intimidated by Cornette. I didn't think he necessarily played a fantastic game. But Al Horford had a great first half. Second half, that simply was not happening. In the second half, you saw them go away from that, and that fourth quarter was just a struggle from anyone except Jalen Brown, and it allowed the Cavs to take the game to overtime, at which point Karis LeVert just took over. They ended up winning the game by nine, but the real backbreaker, more or less at the point where the Celtics were going to throw in the towel, he isolated Brogdon on a three, set him up, took the three, made it, and Brogdon ended up getting his foot underneath him when he came down which turned it into a flagrant foul and retaining possession, and that was all she wrote. The Celtics gave up at that point. They didn't even try to foul, and they took the loss 132-123. to But one of my favorite moments was listening to the officials. Now, normally, there was a few points where they replayed stuff over the course of the game. One, of course, was the Kevin Love play, where he aborted his shooting motion. And then the final one was the Levert play, because in the moment, I don't think many people realized that he got undercut, but he went down and he grabbed at his ankle and the Cavs bench, understandably, freaked out a bit. I don't think Brogdon had any bad intentions. I mean, he did get his foot underneath him and Levert managed to roll his ankle. Seemed to be okay, though. The official, this was his announcement after he reviewed the play. After review, Malcolm Brogdon carelessly puts his foot under Karis Levert. Karis turned his ankle, therefore it's going to be a flagrant foul penalty one on Malcolm Brogdon. I feel like that's a bit of editorializing. The carelessly, I mean, while it's it's accurate, don't get me wrong, but then he proceeds to tell us what happened to Karis LeVert. Really, what happens to him is irrelevant. It shouldn't be the outcome of the action. It should simply be, okay, he didn't give him space to land. His leg could explode. But I appreciate it. It felt like a very pro-cav review state from the officials. So, let's scale out and look at the big picture of last night's game. Now, the Cavaliers climbed to third. In the Eastern Conference, next up, a team that is out to a solid start of their own, the New York Knicks. Better defensive team this year, getting back to their roots with Tom Thibodeau. But their offense has really taken a step forward as well under the leadership of Jalen Brunson, who had a massive game against the Charlotte Hornets the other night. In a game that went to overtime, he gave 27 points, 13 assists, 7 rebounds. Just shy of a triple-double, and the splits were otherworldly. 10 of 15 from the floor. That type of guard play just simply hasn't existed with Julius Randle being the primary facilitator or R.J. Barrett being the primary facilitator. Not a team to be overlooked. They took a lot of abuse for the way that they handled the Mitchell trade and for kind of trying to operate from a position of leverage when perhaps they really didn't have as much leverage as they thought. But so far, their offseason has been a win because a point guard who's giving you nearly 50-40 splits on efficient play and cutting down the turnovers is not something that you should overlook, simply because he doesn't have some of the highlight plays of a Luka Doncic. A lot of people wondered if he was a beneficiary of playing alongside a superstar who draws that much attention. But I think the Jalen Brunson we're seeing is the Jalen Brunson we saw in Dallas. Hyper-efficient, plays within himself, gets other people involved, and does rise to the moment when games are close. One interesting note is that Obi Toppin, now this... I. I always kind of follow what he's doing. One, because he was one of the guys discussed in the trade packages. 
we kept hearing about how, okay, they don't want to include Quentin Grimes. Uh, they'll give you R.J. Barrett and Obi Toppin, but that's it. And everybody was out here talking about how, oh, the Cavs, the Cavs package can't compare to that. Now, mind you, just to touch on how ridiculous that narrative was, Lowry Markinen last night scored 17 points, 10 rebounds, shot 50% from the floor, 50% from three. Their team, despite losing Rudy Gobert, has been incredible rebounding. So he and Olenek and Vanderbilt, all three of those guys, I think you can argue, are underappreciated players who make contributions to winning basketball. And Sexton. Oh, and Sexton, 13 points last night in just 16 minutes. So I realize there's been a rush to judgment on the trade because Sexton hasn't come tearing out of the gates. But understand, they're limiting his minutes. And that may be because he's coming off this big injury. That may be because they're trying to showcase the guys in front of him. Or it simply may be the result of them not having the belief in him that you would think an $80 million contract would dictate. But Ochai Baji seen his first real minutes last night. Nine points on four seven shooting in only 20 minutes. So the point I was trying to make here was I wasn't getting this back into the Sexton versus Mitchell conversation. I was getting this into the Markkinen, Sexton, Abaji versus Barrett and Obi Toppin conversation. And I cannot tell you the number of people I heard saying, oh, not even close. That package is so, so much better for the Knicks than it was for the Cavs. I didn't believe it then. People would have presented me as a homer. And I like to see it being validated by how well Markkinen's playing. And hopefully over time, We'll see Sexton carve out a more substantial role there. And I'm curious to see what Abaji does. I don't have an opinion on that one necessarily, but three over two is never a bad idea. And Lowry Markinen is better than people gave him credit for, period. I listen to podcasts in the aftermath of that trade. Good podcast hosts call him a below average player, which I thought was extremely unfair at the time, especially given how great our defense was with him. It's pleased me to see what the Utah Jazz are doing early on here. I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent. Nick's up next. We will do another podcast where I'm recapping that game, so I don't want to belabor this one, but I will touch on one more thing. At the end of the last episode, I went in just a bit on Clay Thompson for getting ejected. I'm going to summarize my take with a few points. I said he was better than the situation he got in with Devin Booker where he got thrown out of a game that eventually turned into a blowout for the Phoenix Suns. He said that in that moment, he has no place talking trash. One, because Devin Booker was giving it to him. 20 points to his two points. And also because Devin Booker is an echelon of player at this point, a first-team All-NBA guy, whereas Clay kept throwing rings in the face of Booker, which to me is just, that's a team accomplishment. The third or fourth option on some of the greatest teams of all time. It's nothing to sneeze at, but not something I would weaponize against a guy who's a different level of player than you are. Never having had to carry the burden of being the first option on a team and being surrounded by Hall of Fame level talent, I don't like it. I don't like the argument. But I realize this is the world we live in, this ring culture. So here he comes redeeming himself with his post-game comments after Miami where he called out Charles Barkley. So, uh, you know, it hurts when uh, someone like Charles Barkley with the platform he has says you're not the same player prior to the injuries you have. It's like, no duh, man. Consecutive years, I tore my ACL on my Achilles in consecutive years and still help a team win a championship. I mean, it hurt hearing that because it's like, man, I put in so much freaking effort to get back to this point. Like, it's hard to even put into words 
what I had to do to be the player I am today. Who goes through something like that and comes back? I, I don't know. It just hurt my heart hearing that. And since that point, I've seen nothing but favorable Clay Thompson coverage, as it should be. However, I would be remiss if I didn't call attention to what I'm sure every Cavalier fan hearing that monologue thought of immediately the moment that feelings came out of his mouth. And that is, of course, this. Obviously, people have feelings and people's feelings get hurt, even if they're called a bad word. I guess his feelings just got hurt. You remember that moment in 2016? Draymond Green called LeBron James a bitch. They went up 3-1. I got to hear that trash talking from Clay, that smug little smile. I'm sure you Cavs fans haven't forgot it. So it's quite interesting that feelings matter when somebody says something as benign and honest as he's not the same player. That's a pretty honest assessment from Charles Barkley, as you stated yourself. Meanwhile, you have monstrous players like Draymond Green hurling swear words around like bitch at possibly the greatest player of all time, neither here nor there for the moment. And that you found funny. Think of the children, Clay. Swear words into their precious little ears. Meanwhile, somebody simply points out that, okay, you had two devastating injuries, you're not the same guy as you were, and you got all up in your feelings. What's changed? You've gotten soft as you've gotten older, Clay. I guess we can chalk it up to a couple things. One, you've grown as a human being. You're a better person now than those monstrous warrior teams of 2014 to 2018. And that's likely. And this may feel like a negative critique in the moment, but it's not. It's an acknowledgement of growth. So perhaps with time and perspective, you have now become the type of human being that is worth looking up to, similar to how LeBron James has always been. Just a great guy. Doesn't go around calling people bitch. Sure, he makes some cookies from time to time, but are we going to hold baking against a man? A renaissance man? So I just want everyone to remember that. While we're all sucking off Clay Thompson, he's risen back to the top of the likable power rankings of the Golden State Warriors. Never forget that feelings were a joke to him, but now that emotional pirate has boarded my ship of empathy and commandeered it for himself. And I don't like it. Doesn't make me feel good inside. So fine, Clay, I'm back to liking you and your honesty and your vulnerability. But hypocrisy is hypocrisy, and I'm just stating facts. Isn't that right, Clay Thompson? I mean, it sounds like I was stating facts. Facts. This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.